you uh, gave that story the last time we had you on as well, which is fine. Which is fine. Yes, <laughs> but, I did. You're but, right. You are right. But this but, time I think I got the year right. What makes it ironic is that we actually used the next track from that as the title for that show. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to think of this as reuse or continuity. <laughs> Either one of those. Let's, let, yeah, it's a positive spin there. Yeah. Welcome to CPP Chat, a sometimes weekly look at what's going on in the world of C++ with guests from the community. We'll introduce this week's guest in just a moment, but first, as usual, we'll hand over to John for a disclaimer. Thank you, Phil. This website, CPP Chat, is provided for the information and education purposes only. No diagnosis or treatment can be provided, so no doctor-patient relationship is established by the use of this website. The website is not intended to offer specific medical, dental, surgical, or legal advice to anyone. From this website, CPP Chat, the hosts and guests take no responsibility for websites hyperlinked to this website and does not imply any relationship or endorsement of the linked websites. I'm glad about that. I think we're all covered now. I feel very legal. (laughs) So what's going on in the world of C++? Should we do a rundown on conferences? That is our habit, yes. So um, C++ now, is the call for submissions closed now? Um, on the 23rd. 23rd so, so very soon, but not quite. Right. So you can still get it in unless you're listening to the recorded version, in which case it's probably too late. Yeah. <laughs> so sorry about that. Um we mentioned last time that the meeting C++ videos were coming online. Uh, that's They're still trickling through, um, which leaves us with C++ on C uh, coming up in two weeks now. Um, today was meant to be the, the end of standard pricing, but I've actually extended it until Friday. Uh, no, next Monday, actually. Well, check online anyway before you rely on that statement. <laughs> but <laughs> point is, you should get them as soon as possible if you, if you don't want to pay the last minute price. Because we originally set a last-minute price a couple of weeks ahead because we didn't know how many people were going to sign up. Uh, we didn't know what the cash flow was going to be. So we wanted to try and get people to sign up as early as possible. But um, it seems like we've got a bit more of a, of a buffer than than we, we thought we might. So um, I've extended that out a bit. But still, try and get your, your last tickets this week. Um, in fact, if you're looking at workshops, one of them's already sold out, the, the low-latency workshop. Uh, has sold out now. Uh, a couple of the others are getting close. That's there's something elegantly self-referential about that, isn't there? <laughs> well, <laughs> someone said this on Twitter earlier, and I, I said actually no, it sounds like more like uh, high throughput. But still, yeah, whichever way you look at it, it's it's sold out. A um, couple of the others are getting close to capacity, so again, you want to get on that um, as soon as possible. Uh, one one of the workshop instructors is with us today, so we'll, we'll speak to Kevin about that in a moment. Um, I, I do have one thing yeah. about C++ now, I should have said. Um, yeah. We were about to open uh, registration, and when we do that, we'll make sure that the uh, hotel link is online. This year, we will not have the same hotel capacity. There's actually a small group that's going to be happening in the same hotel we are, so we won't have the hotel. So I'm encouraging people to get your hotel rooms very early. So uh, just a tip for people who are um uh, are listening to the to the show uh they will they will probably go fast right yeah good point and actually that reminds me uh call c plus plus um i think the, the call for speakers is closed now but if you are looking to go there at all uh, as we mentioned before because it's the same week as the eurovision song contest in the same location uh, you should definitely try and get your hotels booked as early as possible uh, if there are still any left 
uh, I've been in the same city for a conference as when there was a uh, 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 was when there was a Eurovision uh, Song Contest final. It's quite surreal um, when you go to the hotels. It's quite a different experience than the <laughs> usual hotel experience. Um, but what I can say is that if you go to breakfast early, the place is deserted because everybody's been partying all night. So, you know, uh, but if you wanted a full night's sleep, ah, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah, actually, yeah. Some years ago, I was living in Copenhagen, uh, and oh, I remember it was that. Yes. At, at the time that the Eurovision Song Contest was there, and it was in a stadium that was, um, I don't know, a couple of hundred meters behind the bed and breakfast I was staying in. So I, I was trying to get some sleep because I've been working all through the night, and yeah, I couldn't. It was, it was too noisy. <laughs> so I know what you mean. Um, Adi, Adi said they were setting up a tent city for. Did you say ten thousand people? Ten thousand people, yeah. <laughs> yeah otherwise, uh, otherwise, that you you wouldn't be able to get anywhere, I guess. But uh, right, but is yeah. that for the conference? Yeah, I'm sure that's what he meant. I'm <laughs> yeah, sure it's not the for the contest. Yeah, that's right. No, no, no. I know what the Eurovision folks are doing. Yeah, yeah they, you know, they're on their conference. own. But yeah. but we've got the conference covered. That's the main. That's the main takeaway there. <laughs> Either way, it's going to be an intense experience. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's one more conference to mention. That's the the ACCU conference. Uh, the schedule has just gone online uh, today, I think. So uh, yes. uh, now's yes. the time to to register for that as well. That's uh, in April. I think that's the the roundup of conferences for now. I actually just yesterday was updating the uh, the schedule. So for all the conferences that that I know about or that are scheduled that I know about, um, those are uh, if you go to isocpp.org and look on the wiki page there, the SuperFAC. I sorry, the SuperFAC. There's a link there to uh, to conference events or to scheduled events in the C++ world. And and there's actually you know a bunch of conferences that are already scheduled for the year. So uh, so you can do your planning there. Yeah, definitely look at that at the beginning of the year if you can. Plan everything else around it. That's right. Birthdays, weddings, everything. That's what I do. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's talk about uh, the workshop for C++ on C. Yes, indeed. Yeah. So um, on the Wednesday, um, which is... The 6th, I think. Has a date. The 6th, that sounds plausible. I'll, I'll buy that, yeah. Um, so on the Wednesday, um, John Jagger and I are doing uh, a day of deliberate practice, Um We've hard-coded the length into the name of the thing. And uh, that is very much about getting better, getting better at doing certain things. The Obviously, the focus will be um, uh, coding, and uh, uh, we're trying to highlight notions of self-awareness, working with other people, working in super small steps, um, communicating, all the rest of it. So in one sense, it's a kind of break from the technical intensity that you may find uh, normally when we talk about a C++ conference, you expect uh, a barrage of angle brackets and curly brackets, whereas we're kind of looking at the people side of things. And we're going to use, uh, uh, and we normally do this in terms of testing, test-driven development. We kind of explore that angle um, and focusing on small problems and treating the problems not as the challenge itself, but the very process of trying to work with somebody else to create a solution and try out new things. So there's this kind of careful uh, balance. And then to sort of repeat this, sort of 
as it were, um, improve your awareness uh, of yourself and your own work. But we're going to do this through repetition, hence deliberate practice. You know, it is it is kind of interesting that with all the conferences and all the sessions, there's not a lot of of material that's actually focused on how to be a better programmer. Yeah. If you if you see the distinction, I mean, there's lots of information on how to use the language, how to use a library, you know, what your code should look like, but not a lot on how you should write code. Uh, we we did have a we did have a talk. Uh, someone was talking about how you should read. Uh, how you should read code to understand it. And it was a, yeah. you know, that was more the process about how to be a programmer. But the actual yeah. practice of programming, uh, that's pretty simple, right? You just sit at a keyboard and type. So why do we need <laughs> to talk about that? Um, yeah. but, 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 but it's surprisingly, it's surprising to me how little we talk about how to be a better programmer. Uh, how do you go about solving problems? Um, and, and I think this is something that we touched on in the community recently because we, we're so out of touch with our own history. We didn't know, as a community, we don't know what IOTA stands for. <laughs> and somebody, uh, somebody yes. some point pointed out, of course, it, it, it's uh, converting an integer into a string, right? I to A, right? IOTA. Uh, um, <laughs> but 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 there but yeah, we don't we don't talk about enough about how to be a better programmer. What, what does that take? Uh, what are the disciplines involved? What are the processes involved? Instead, we talk about you know here's this new syntax or here's another you know a new way of, of using you know making something new at compile time and yeah i'm not opposed to that of course i mean you know that's that that's very very important uh, but but sometimes i think maybe we should say well you know programming is a professional practice and uh practice is a key word there we 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 mm. need to figure out how to get better and better at it and we often don't talk about that yeah i i, I think that's very true i think it's a very um because this is this i think this is a long standing area of, of um, interest of mine because i uh, once upon a time um yeah a long time ago in a galaxy far far away c plus plus report i started a column um that was called from mechanism to method um or yeah, from uh, uh, and because my concern was and this is basically reflecting my concern of the late 1990s we keep spending our time every time i go to a conference and there'd be a c++ presentation or c++ track or a whole c++ conference there would be this relentless focus on hey here's a language feature let's talk about how you use this keyword how you use that keyword that's fine but that was all mechanism how yeah. you I, I, how do you put it together to create a system of meaning that is what a software system is it is a system of meaning it is built out of the stuff of thought the fact that it comes out in c++ in one system and in python in another um these are important steps on actually getting a piece of running software but somehow we're missing the bit how do you get better at doing this and this is not about keystrokes this is um about trade-offs this is about learning new habits and how easy is it to learn a new habit well turns out the more experienced you are as a developer sometimes the harder it is to pick up something new because you have your your tracks your your thinking habits are so well um uh, trodden in that actually trying to jump out of those um well that must be wrong you know i reject this because we've never done this i've done so the problem is your your brain's um sort of a police force your antibody system rejects these things um, and there is the notion that we often focus on the lots of the little details without putting them together. And you get the opposite problem in some cases. People are just big picture and there's no detail focus. But often at a programming or code-centric conference, sometimes the bit we're missing is, how do I think in the stuff? How do I 
choose between this, that how do I get better at a thing that I don't already know? How do I not use these features? That is, I think that's one of the more interesting ones. I, you know, maybe there's a session to be had there. How not to use all of these new features uh, or how not to use it. But there's that notion of um, judgment. Uh, and, and that is a, an act of thinking. And I think it's uh, Bertrand Russell said, you know, many people would, ra- would sooner die than think. And in fact, many people do. Um, <laughs> so so and what we're really after here is this idea of really getting people to go deep into their thoughts and um, uh, and to, to work on this, to find their habits. And very much that's what John and I are exploring in the deliberate practice session is this idea of we're talking about uh, re, re uh, laying down the tracks of your habits because your habits are so deeply woven into you, you almost don't see them. So when something different comes along, it's quite you evaluated on the wrong terms. So there's this idea of like, well, you could let's let's try this one again. Let's now let's reflect on it rather than just uh, reject it or accept it. Even that that also works. You don't want to be um, tigger and unconditionally accept everything. Pause a moment, slow down. And again, this is something we're obsessed with when we talk about um, uh, development. We're obsessed with speed. We're obsessed with the idea that we must get faster. Whereas honestly, uh, a lot of it is about pausing a little bit of pace and steadiness. Uh, you know, this kind of thing is, is, is important. So that's the emphasis we're trying to give there. It's going to be a very code-centric day, but it's this idea of we're going to try and offer something a little bit a little bit different there in that, in, uh, from that uh, uh, point of view. But yeah, I think it is a general sense that people sometimes feel uncomfortable talking about um, uh, learning. Perhaps learning is a thing that we think of as a purely private affair, uh, or it's a thing we did in the past when we went to school or university, and, and it's not a thing we necessarily need to have a theory or mental model of for our current work. It, it, I think uh, it varies across people. It's interesting that you tie it up to uh, to learning there. Uh, there's an interesting talk that Dan North gives where he's he's basically criticising deliberate practice. Yeah. But it's not really criticising deliberate practice, he's criticising uh, some people's presentation of deliberate practice. Yeah. And he basically turns around again and says, what we really want to do is deliberate learning. Yes. And that, that's the, uh, the the key to it. So, yeah. Yeah. Because well, that's, that's the important point is that um, uh, for a lot of people, the their introduction to deliberate practice is um, is the uh, Malcolm Gladwell book. Hmm. Um, yeah. and, uh, focusing on the 10,000 hours, 10,000 hours. But the, uh, Malcolm Gladwell slightly misrepresented the original research. Um, not just 10,000 hours, it's 7,000 hours, it turned out. But also, what was involved <laughs> in it. Um, but 7,000 doesn't sound sensible. We like power, we like we like simple powers of 10. Um, so Or two. Uh, so, so there's this idea that the deliberate, and in fact, it gets called, it's been called slightly different things in different uh, places in the literature in the past, um, deliberative and uh, and so on. But the idea is not simply doing something on purpose, but there's the deliberation. And that's actually something that John and I try to focus in, in our aspect. It's not simply, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do this and I'm going to stop. I'm going to go, okay, what, what was it that didn't work about that? What was novel? What was an interesting experience that I don't yet know how to think about? What are my objectives for the next time I do it? In other words, that's the, what you're doing is deliberate goal setting, um, and it fits much more closely with what Dan talks about here. He talks about deliberate learning, deliberate discovery. I am going to go out with the intention of doing stuff that... Uh, will unearth new things 
um, and you know, I was I'm prepared to be surprised um, and discover these. So there's that notion. That's really where the deliberate goes. But a lot of people just think oh, I'm going to repeat the same thing, and uh, unsurprisingly enough, they get bored and demotivated. And magic does not occur. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that one of the things that allows us to uh, fall into and fall into this trap is to say there's so much that has to be done and I'm most comfortable with this part. So I'll just work on that first. In other words, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should think at a high level. Maybe we should do some documentation. Maybe we should talk about use cases. Maybe we should talk about testing, but I'm way more comfortable writing code. So I'm just going to write a little prototype. And that's my excuse is that I'm developing a prototype. I mean, who wouldn't do that first, right? Of course, I never throw it away and start over because, well, now it's working. So I'll just build on this. And in other words, the most fun part is writing the code and, and, and creating the API on the fly. And, you know, when I first, uh, first started as a programmer, so much of what we were doing because of the time it was, was discovering things about the OS that were kind of documented, but not well documented. Mm -hmm. And so, and so the, the first step to writing any program was to actually write code that tested out. Well, what does this really do? Because here's this call, and I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to be passing here because it's not really clear. It says, yeah, you pass in the location, but what does that mean exactly? So I, mm. you know, I try some things, and I, and I see how these things work. And then I've got a chunk of code that actually seems to be doing what I want, and I build on that. And it's never really deliberately designed. Instead, it organically comes from, I figured out that this call does this, and, and everything just kind of organically grows from there. And that's probably not a bad way to learn about how a technology works, hmm. but it's not a great way to build an application. It's because you yeah. want to be deliberate. You want to come out. And I, you know, I can remember after doing some of this and then sitting down and say, well, this should be documented. I write the documentation. And in the process of writing the documentation, I realized this API is designed all wrong because mm. this is not how anybody's going to use it. So I went back and, and changed it. But I, I hate to think how many times in my career I haven't done a good job of documentation, which means I didn't go back and rewrite the API when I figured out that the API was wrong. Because, But the, but the point is I'm doing what's comfortable for me, right? I sit down. Yeah. I, I'm a little bit nervous about – yeah, I've read the description that the OS says about how this works, but I'm a little uncomfortable about it. So I want to play with that and make sure I understand how it really works. And then after I've invested some time and I have some working code, well, that seems like a good starting point for the rest of the project. And it's not a good starting point. Yeah, It is, it is a way in. It is what's comfortable for me. But if I keep doing this, I'm never going to get better at the deliberate design of saying, okay, what are my use cases? How do I want the code to be used? And designing that kind of outside in is really the way um, is really the way to make a better API. Although I would also say that you can't successfully do that unless you are comfortable with that technology. In other words, you you build this API yeah. and say, "How would you like it called?" And then you write that API, and then when you get in there and you realize, "Oh." Uh, there's no way to do this in in that you know in the right uh, big O orientation because I didn't realize yeah. what the internal structure really is like until I got there. Yeah. So you almost have to do it the way I would like to do it. In other words, you know, to to explain to understand the technology. But once you understand the technology, then you have to go back and say, okay, as a as a user of this library, not necessarily the 
end user, although that's probably mm. driving your use cases, but you want to then say, okay, now how am I going to use this? And you need to ha- you need to understand how it works. But but if you start from that, then you're then you're at least for me. And again, it's the reason I'm the reason I'm talking about this is because that's my comfort level, and that's how I you know if if I don't if I don't either force myself or if there isn't someone looking over my shoulder saying, okay this is the wrong path to go down. That's the path I'm going to go down. It's, it's what I'm comfortable with. And it's because I'm picking uh, this huge job that we got to do. There's so much work to do, so much documentation, so much testing, all this stuff. I'm going to go to the stuff that I'm comfortable with, that I enjoy doing. That's, that's, that's fun and, and playful and not a complete yeah. waste of time. And yeah, I think there's a, there's a balance here, which I think, um, so often I talk about, uh, software development being, uh, a, a knowledge based, um, profession and this is one of those classifications that's been around for decades but what does that actually mean it means it's about knowing stuff it is about knowing the technical side of things it's about knowing what you're trying to build knowing the uh, target domain and all the rest of it and then what you're trying to do is quite literally codify something you are trying to formalize here's my understanding of how i'm going to build it and my understanding um, of the purpose um, which i'm building this the problem is that these are not questions to which you can know the answer in advance there will be unknowns and the, what not normally happens is uh, kind of describing what you're looking at is people will find the bit they're most comfortable with and kind of hunker down in that corner um rather than saying here it, it, here are the things i do not know nah. at some point i will need to know them how do i f- move from a position of ignorance to a position of knowledge with some sense of progress we don't know everything yet we must build something um just sticking to your comfort zone is not going to it is a good not necessarily bad starting point but that's not the big picture um just focusing on lots of things that you don't know may actually be a high risk approach um uh so what you're looking for is a mix of these and then going to throw in a bit of fun as well because honestly i enjoy uh, the, 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 it's nice if you can actually enjoy your work. So you're looking to balance these <laughs> things, the things that I know, the things that I do not know, and the things that I enjoy. And so there's a little bit of joy to be had from learning something, experimenting something, finding that something does work. There's sometimes fun in finding something that doesn't work. Um, somehow being able to get in the tedious stuff drawn into this cycle and also rely on what you know. So this is a so therefore, that sort of learning is one of these feeds that goes in here. The, or, or, by the way, if anybody's ever thinking, how do I sell the idea of learning to my management? It's a very simple trick of words that you can use. Um, you call it knowledge acquisition. <laughs> you say, what I'm doing here, um, so how would you characterize your software development? Well, I characterize it as um, a knowledge acquisition process. Brilliant. Sounds formal. Sounds wonderful. What you're doing is you're learning. You're doing some experimentation. You're having a bit of fun. You're getting some work done. But that doesn't sound very businessy. So knowledge acquisition process is a really good one. Um, but that is ultimately what you're trying to do. So it's this careful balance of these things. So there's the things that you know which are valuable. There's the things that you don't know which could be valuable. And you know you're trying to do. And I think it's that blend that we often struggle with. That idea that we're not just going to stick to one thing. We have to mix it in with the others. Uh, and I think that that's where our challenge lies. And that's, if you like, the thing to talk about. That is the thing to talk about. We're not very good at that. We assume that whatever it is we've done in the past is sufficient for our learning model because clearly we've done okay with that. We've perhaps not reflected on our learning and how we learn. 
and that software development is always learning. And we just think, well, we're doing well enough. You know, I, I have a, you know, I have a job and therefore I must be doing okay. Rather than saying, is this a way, is there something I could do that was better? Is there a different question I could have asked at this point? And the point you make about thinking, in fact, this is the simplest one. If you ever tell people, um, uh, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to write documentation. You can just kind of see the faces. <laughs> but you almost need to game it. You almost have to say, you know, to turn this one around as a, an exercise in empathy, what would you like to read? Uh, this is a, uh, it's, it's a sort of derived from an idea from Larry Constantine. Um, uh, he, he talked about instead of deliverables, documentation is a deliverable, he said, think of it as a consumable. Not what would you like to write, what do you think you can write? And often people will just write stuff, you know, oh, here's, here's the code. Let me rephrase the intent of the code and all the rest of it. Um, what would you like to read? And it turns out it's a very different question. That's a pull question rather than a push question. And so if you think about it from that point of view, what would you like to read? Now, that's an interesting one. You can get a, a few people together to discuss that. Uh, it's something that doesn't feel like writing documentation. Um, it's something that you can actually, it's one of those cases where, describe something record it and then have somebody transcribe it uh, or one trick i used in the uh, with this one weird trick i did this in the past i got somebody to email me they described a whole bunch of stuff to me and i said that's brilliant why didn't you email that to me now if you ask somebody to write documentation like oh i can't do that you tell a developer i want you to explain what you just told me in an email you've deformalized it and they send you this extensive email, which is and then edit it down. Hooray, you've got documentation. <laughs> so in other words, for a lot of it, it is our, our, it's our approach to it. And sometimes we have language baggage that makes it sound less exciting. It's just like, no, it's not documentation. What I'm trying to do is tell you how I think about it. Here is a mental model. I want you to get into this. In other words, there's a conversation here, but normally we forget there's another party and we just end up just feeding stuff onto a screen. Mm -hmm. So would you call that test-driven documentation? <laughs> Uh, yeah, in fact, actually, uh, no, seriously, there is a, there's a really interesting idea. I had a chat with um, uh, Claire Sudbury from, um, uh, she works for ThoughtWorks in Manchester. Um, we got talking, so Claire, I, I write short fiction in my spare time, and Claire's written novels. So we got talking at a conference a couple of years back um, about testing, about writing, and we eventually thought, wait a minute, you know, I wonder if there's something we could do further. And Claire you know, picked up the ball and actually did a lightning talk on this. Uh, it's available somewhere online, a, a lightning talk on test-driven novel writing. Um, in other words, this whole idea of, okay, so I want to get these characters to this point and, and so on, and, and how do I do this? It's a really interesting way of doing that. But that whole idea of looking at something from a fresh perspective, and I think that, I think, is... Um, uh, it goes back to this idea, which I think helps in learning a great deal, motivation. Um, I'm not really motivated to write documentation if you describe it like that, but am I motivated to help somebody work uh, work on a piece of code? Well, yeah, you put it like that, and 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 suddenly it, it changes this. Well, how do you motivate somebody? Um, uh, maybe perhaps I lead lead with an example or a description of the problem that you have, not some generic problem, but the problem that you might have. Oh, you want to do this? Oh, okay. Let me show you how to do that. Let's walk through this and. That's a very different way of approaching it, and yet it achieves the bigger picture. And afterwards, we can call it documentation, but the process by which you uh, uh, approached it uh, makes the biggest difference. And you probably, the very act, and John, you described this one, that act of sometimes, you know, you're documenting, you're trying to take the user's perspective, suddenly you realise this is unusable. 
you know, my brilliant API that I created from the inside out, actually now I come to use it, it does not seem quite so brilliant. Now I'm trying to describe it. Now the words are coming out. It's just like, yeah, that's not so hot. And, you know, oh, this is infinitely parameterizable. So we're going to pass in 20 arguments and you can do anything you want. Guess what? That's not what programmers need from an API. They don't want to do anything they want. They normally have a, a really well-defined space in which they're working. And they really want to target that. So we need to sort of home in on that. And that becomes clearer when we try and describe it. Whereas if you, you, opening with, you have a generic class of problems, is never, going to, is never going to cut it. So here's how we gamify doing documentation then. I'm, I'm working on an API. And, and, and so... I've discussed with Kevin what this API is going to do. I write down my documentation for this API, and without having a, even a compiler, you're going to write the code to exercise my API. And when I see what you've written, and I know that's not going to work because I know what those calls are really doing, I'm not allowed to tell you that. All I'm allowed to do is go back and change the documentation and say, please reread the documentation and make another pass at your code. And I can never directly criticize your code. All I can do is improve my documentation. That's really good. I like that. Yeah, it's... Uh, um, no, no, in fact, you, no, don't say go and reread the documentation because that sounds too much like one of those cases. And that sounds too much like an RTFM. Simply offer, I have updated the right, documentation. Right. Let's make it a much yeah, more yeah, event-based yeah. okay, okay. architecture. The documentation has been updated, Kevin. Perhaps you'd like to consult it. It's just, a, <laughs> But that's a really interesting way. And that's the classic, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a really nice uh, sort of empirical model with that. It looks a little bit like the PDSA cycle yes, in yes. that sense. But there's that notion of how did he misunderstand it? And you're not allowed to sit there and go, my God, how stupid is this man? How is he getting this so wrong? Uh, you say, no, okay, I'm going to have to really labour this point and, and get this one out. But yeah, I think that's a, an interesting one because you're actually, you're experimenting. You are actually using the, the documentation is an information artifact mm -hmm. and you are effectively testing. It's a usability yeah. test, you know, and, and therefore you are driving it from that point of view. But I think there's also an element there if we're talking about deliberate learning, there's an element there of yeah, you have to almost up to a point have a deliberate ignorance driving you. What might this person not right. know? And and likewise, if I'm doing it, if I know too much about what you've done, yeah. I might also have to adopt a certain deliberate ignorance and say, well, perhaps I don't know this because I'm channeling somebody else's experience right. and using examples from my own experience. So I think that that, um, but that actually makes it feel more like an interactive process. Um, and when we think about it, that, and that kind of makes sense. The, the documentation, for example, should satisfy some kind of sense of requirements. We don't have generic readers. We have people trying to achieve things. Um, and we can, if we're supposed to be skilled in crafting information, which is codification, then perhaps we need to, we should realize we do know how to do this, but perhaps we've been approaching it incorrectly and that we just need to recast it. It, you know, one of the things you said about how could they misunderstand, I, I see this more times than I, I, I'm uncomfortable about it, although it's exciting to actually witness it. But a speaker is asked a question, and then you listen to the speaker's response to the question, and you realize, you, you understand why the question was written, because you're or why the question was asked, because you're sitting in the session, and you understand what the audience member says, but you also understand what the speaker thought the question was, based on their response. And you can see... That they disconnect. Yeah. This person's asking for this information. This person 
because that information seemed obvious to them, thought the question was something else and answered that other question. Yeah. And now the questioner doesn't even know how to follow up because they're completely lost. And, and you, you know, yeah, you just want to intercede and say, okay, let me be your interpreter here. Um, I worked on a project once where I was, I was to do a small part of the project and someone else was the lead engineer. And it was just a two person. It wasn't a huge thing. And the, uh, it was an internal project at a company and the other individual then was going and asking lots of questions to the group that the project was being done for. And I understood those people and their issues. But what happened was this individual got sick and I now was in the role of stepping over. I'm going to have to complete the whole project myself. My priorities were shuffled. So now I, I'm doing this and I'm looking at the code that he wrote and thinking, this isn't what they asked for. But I thought about it and I realized, but this is a logical response to what they probably told him they wanted. And, mm. you know, I understood because I was a programmer, he was a programmer. I also understood from their point of view because I used to work not actually in that organization, but with that organization. I understood how I understood yeah. their ideas and what language they would have used and how they would have explained things and the examples they would have given. And then when I looked at how he actually wrote the code, it all made sense, but it was all a complete mess. Yeah. Um, this is kind of interesting because it's, uh, we were talking about the ACCU conference earlier on and, um, uh, and Phil said the schedule has just gone up uh, and uh, uh, it turns out that what the talk that I'm doing there uh, is called What Do You Mean? Um, which is exactly about this question of meaning and misunderstanding and how it is possible to, um, uh, even with a shared vocabulary, um, you can still misunderstand uh, people, but um, the, the degree to which we do misunderstand, because in one sense, we we hear from a particular discipline. We're trying to, in our heads, construct a software system, a prototypical one in our head. We're trying to explore it. And we go, oh, how would I do that? How would I do this? How would I? And you're doing that. But what you're actually doing is you're matching parts to what somebody is saying, which may or may not correspond to what they're saying. But the more confident you become, probably the less you listen. And so therefore you start creating, you've, you're, you're making sense. Quite literally, you are making sense. You go, oh yeah, this, is, this, this works. And perhaps it touches on a, a particular pet passion or a new thing that you wanted to try. And it's just, oh, that's brilliant. I can use this new API. I can use this framework. And before you know it, you've gone ahead and created this masterpiece that is almost entirely incorrect, but wonderfully well-formed. <laughs> One of, one of the traps you fall into is something you said that is a shared vocabulary. The worst thing that can happen is that you do have a shared vocabulary in the sense that you both have an overlapping set of terms, but you have different meanings for those terms because it's a different term of art yes. in, in, in your experience than what they're talking about. And um, so that can be, you know, the domain you're, you're looking at um, will, have its own, will have its own terms and its own meanings for it, and they may overlap with your domain in, in ways that are, they create an impedance rather than a, a reinforcement. That's right. Yeah. And th that's very much in my talk about these, the words are the same, but actually it turns out you're having a different conversation because your associated meanings are slightly off, if not completely off. So um, someone is, is, is suggesting, Hannah said she likes to write a mind map of the problem she's solving. Is that something that you uh, have tried or any experience with or thinking about yes um yeah i'm not necessarily a mind map person but i have found uh occasionally getting people to try and you try i do draw down i do draw things 
um, not necessarily in a formal mind map. Um, but this idea of sometimes let me change the way that I am approaching this. Let me just write some things down. Let me draw something. Um, and that idea is get it out of your head um, into a different form. It's it's uh, and it forces you to confront certain things and you start drawing a few things and and so. Um, but when I have used mind maps with a group, uh, the one that I've found uh, useful is MindMap. Um, it's an online tool. And so therefore it's quite useful in the sense you can actually go around sharing it. It's, it's low ceremony. You don't have to install anything. So you can simply just put that, put that up on a screen and people say, well, what, what should we, you know, what's associated with this? And you get people, sometimes people who are not comfortable or rather if you gave them a flip chart, they would do things linearly. And there's good reasons to do that. But sometimes you want to get people away from that. Uh, but I think the first step is get something out. Um, and that, I think, is, uh, I think that's valuable. Um, look at it differently, whatever you're going to do. If it's to write it down in a list, to associate it as a non-list structure, to go a bit further than that, um, to explain the problem in a different programming language if it is a coding problem. That's always quite fun. Um, but all of these things, reframe it, look at it from, if you like, um, an alternative perspective. We have binocular vision um, and we get a better sense of the whole by seeing something from more than one side. And I think the same is true of thoughts, although we often think our minds are so powerful we can overcome that. It's like, honestly, try it in a different way. Um, and, uh, you know, for some people, they will do this. I know one one developer who works in, who works in one environment, English speaking, but um, is not a native English speaker and will sometimes rephrase the problem to a, a sort of, you know, the rubber duck um, thing uh, in the native language. And sometimes that is, shows a different set of associations or thoughts or questions arise. But what you've done is you just said, I'm not going to think about this in exactly the same way it's presented to me. Let me offer it. Let's mess about with it a little bit. Whatever it is that you do, just do something slightly different to whatever it is you normally do, and you may see something else about it. Because the challenge here is to try and understand. It's not It's not about typing. Right. It's not about angle brackets and curly brackets. But I can see how management is going to push back on that and say, well, we already have a problem description. Why are you trying to write a new problem description? We've already, we've already got this list. This is the sacred list. This is what we're trying to build. Um, yes, indeed. And I think that's a, a lovely, sweet belief. <laughs> um and, um, uh, you know, it's kind of sweet. I don't know. Maybe it's, you know, my wife used to be a primary school teacher. Maybe it's like teaching kids, you know. It's just like, of course, that's what you believe. I think that's really nice. Probably less, perhaps a little less um, patronizing in response. But there, there is that idea. Yes, I, there is going to be pushback on this because also you're talking about um, the, um, uh, the whole idea of, um, of seeing people actively not coding. You've got a bunch of people who are talking to each other or looking deep in thought at something. You've got people people doodling on bits of paper or going to a whiteboard to do stuff. Or you, you go round to the desk and maybe they're using MindMap and it's just like, well, that doesn't look like a software um, uh, code generation tool. It looks like they're drawing bubbles with that, with lines between them. Um, but that's it. That's it's thinking is our challenge. Um, it, it's not a it's not a typing contest. You know, it's it's good to have some typing skill because that allows you when you're in the flow to stay in the flow. But that is not the principal bottleneck, the main axis of software development. And yet it is one of the most visible things that so people quantify the wrong thing. But I think this idea of looking at things from a different angle, somebody's, uh, Olaf has, uh, Olaf has just uh, put up um, 
uh, a technique that is used, uh, I mentioned earlier that I, um, uh, I, I write short fiction, a technique that is often recommended um, in writing. Um, so it's a, a trick the PhD, which is definitely worth following, um, uh, taught me a while back. When reviewing text for the nth time, change the font and the font size, and you'll find so many new things wrong because your brain is too adjusted to the text. Things become blind. And so this is a, a common technique when you're reviewing a text, change the margins, change the font. Um, and you will see things. Things appear on different lines. They align differently. Um, one of the ones I learned was also read it out. Um, certain phrasing becomes obvious or obviously clunky uh, when you're doing this, but it's all part of this whole idea of you become so habituated to seeing something, your brain starts doing what it does best, which is tuning out familiarity, tunes out everything it's seen before, and you that which sometimes means the problems with it also become invisible. So there's this idea of, again, there's a notion of looking at things differently. Uh, I was talking earlier on about going slowly. It's the idea that John and I do with the deliberate practice of let's slow down and also have somebody else to talk to because your conversation will probably take you to a different place um, uh, when you're focusing on, oh, how did I write that test? Oh, my tests are fine, they pass. Somebody else goes, yeah, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with the words that we used, or that word didn't mean that to me, or maybe we should structure it like this, or is the emphasis right on this? So there's a notion there that you're coming out of exactly that comfort zone we talked about, which is great and comfortable. It has, a na- has that name for a reason, but sometimes you just need to look at it and go, oh, that's interesting. You know, that, that's a bit funny. That's strange. Or that's where you start learning. You start thinking about something new. You synthesize a new idea. And, uh, the obs- yeah, the observation here about interesting things uh, about refactoring, just this fact of reorganizing the code helps you see uh, different issues. That's a really good observation. Um, and, indeed, um, uh, Kent Beck mentioned it in his uh, Small Talk Best Practice Bands book, which is about, oh, 22 years ago, 23 years ago. And he talks about it. Before refactoring got popular, he talks about sometimes he just moves the code around just to, it's kind of almost like playing with it, make it physical and just say, oh, this, and now I understand. Now I understand why this works this way. Well, I see what the mind, uh, the mind of the creator of this code was thinking. I understand where they're coming from. But sometimes that's not obvious until you have manipulation. Well, I think I think there is this because because I see this in my own writing all the time, where I know what I intended to say and I read it that way, and yeah. only when I I happen to be interrupted, so I don't send the email. I come back twenty minutes later and I reread what I wrote, and it's like. I sound like a complete idiot just because I, you know, it's not even grammatically correct, but it's, but when I read it, I heard it in my head the way I meant it to say. And so uh, Mm. it's only when you're forced to actually see what's actually there that you realize, uh, you realize the mistakes that are, that are in it. Um, And I, and I think there's uh, the same thing can be happened with things like tests and things like that, writing tests. And I, I think one of the challenges we have, with writing code is that there are so many dimensions. In other words, when I'm writing code, it, it has to be, um, it has to not leak, but it has to be also exceptions. Say those are somewhat related, uh, but it also has to be mm. reentrant and it has to be this and it has to be that. And it has to be all these things. And, and you want to make it Unicode safe and all these kinds of things. And you can't think of all those things at the yeah. same time. And when you're writing a particular piece of code, maybe there's two or three things you're really worried about. This code, I'm, I'm manipulating resources, so I got to make certain that I'm that I'm that I'm not leaking anything in this code. But somewhere else, I have a different concern. And the problem is that we really need to, you know, 
wear 10 different hats when looking at the code and you can't wear them all at the same time. So you wear one hat and you're saying, okay, I'm looking for const correct here. Is there any place that I made yeah. that I, that I overlooked the opportunity to make something const? And then you make another pass and you say, okay, I'm looking at this entirely from a re-entrancy threading kind of point of view. Is there anything that I, I'm, I'm using a static in a way that is, is going to be problematic. And I didn't think about it when I originally wrote it. And then you put on a different hat and you say, well, is this going to be internationalizable? Is this going to be um, something that works with any language? Or was I thinking too much about the English language when I wrote this? And then you wear another hat and you say, well, how portable is this? If I were to run this on a little Indian or a big uh, Indian, yeah. but, you just keep... – Yeah, but then in the middle of this – exactly in the middle of this stream – Somebody comes over and asks you a question. <laughs> they disrupt the flow. And that is, and that becomes the, there's the notion of we're spinning so many plates and we become very confident, particularly when we remember our good days. Yes. <laughs> oh, that day. Yeah, I, it was awesome. I, oh, that was the day I walked on water and wrote that code and did this and solved world peace. Excellent. And you think that everything will follow in those days. So there you are. You haven't got to the threading bit, you, but you've already got a sense of satisfaction because you caught something you suddenly thought oh yeah if i just twist the, if i just move these around i've got um this becomes exception safe for free fantastic colleague comes over interrupts you you do something else where was i something gets missed one of the plates fell in fact maybe a few more of them fell but that's the that's the notion you're 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 always juggling there's so much to keep track of and again it goes back to this idea of um it, uh, trying to um, look at learning as an uh, as an understanding. Where's where's my limits on this? What am I actually good at, and what am I not good at? So therefore, I need to pay a little more attention to what should I be learning, or I always concentrate on this, but somehow get it wrong. Is there a different way of approaching this? Um, you know, was a, a little bit of self doubt might be healthy here. Oliver has uh, posted the obligatory webcomic in the chat. Got to put a link to that. Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so if you're not following, if you're not following the Slack stream, there's some really good stuff. Here. <laughs> um, uh, you know, it's uh, uh, we, we've got entertainment, wisdom. You know, so uh, yes. Uh, oh, there's even questions. <laughs> you know, one of the one of the things that really impressed me about working at Microsoft was the degree to which they worked hard to not interrupt programmers, mm. and it was obviously part of their culture. But I do remember having a conversation with a PM about this, and only then did I really get the the um, the appreciation to which the PMs would just love to run and ask us questions all the time. Well, could we do this? And how much would it be to do this? And how much would it be? And they're very, very disciplined themselves to not not interrupt mm. engineers. And my schedule on a weekly basis was very minimal. In fact, we had a team meeting that wasn't even weekly. It was every week and a half. And it was a very deliberate kind of thing. It wasn't like, well, it's Wednesday afternoon, so nobody gets any work done. Instead, we go to this silly meeting. And the number of meetings I went to was really small. Now, there may be some weaknesses to that, but but there was this huge difference between that culture and when I went to Amazon. Um, in, in, in that culture, when you were assigned a task and you were going to make a design document, you would have a design review and the PM would be there and the test lead would be there. And there might be one or two other engineers that you wanted there because they had done something similar or worked on something related to this. And we would get together and the meeting tended to be pretty short because we've all read and made our notes. And we literally whoever wrote the document would then say, well, any questions on the first page? 
And, you know, and we went through together, right? And so it didn't take long and it, and it didn't interrupt many people's time. The alternative at Amazon was you wrote a design document and you put it on the schedule and you'd walk into a room and there's 25 people there. It's like, who are all these people? Well, these are people who just want to know what we're doing kind of generally. And they don't, they haven't read the proposal. They want you to give them a presentation. And this was so much more time consuming mm-hmm. and would cause interruptions in people's day. Now, I think there was something great about that too, because we all kind of had a much more shared understanding of what we were accomplishing because people were seeing, oh yeah, there's this thing going on that's not really related to what I'm doing, but I know about it. But it really did break up your day. I mean, there was a lot more interruption yeah. and in the the Microsoft model, maybe it was too much the other way, but, but you know, you'd look at your calendar and in a given week, you might have two or three meetings and one of those meetings might just be an interview with someone. I mean, you, you were really able to focus and I, I, it wasn't an accident. At first, I didn't think too much about it. It was only when I started talking yeah. to some PMs and I happened to mention that. And they said, you know, we understand programmers don't get interrupted. And that's that's really important to us. Now, email comes all the time. And one of the things that there was a particular engineer was really solid about this. He, you, If you came back from lunch, you might see an answer to his email. But he wasn't going to look at email all morning long and he wasn't going to look all afternoon. In the middle of the day, He's, he he cleared his inbox of whatever the email issue was and then didn't look at email again. Um, and that's what always happens is, you know, when you start compiling, then you read email, but then you get interrupted and you don't, you know, neither, neither job is well done. Um, yeah. There's a lot of, a lot of trade-offs depends on your culture and those kinds of things. But I, but this stark difference in culture, you know, really drove home to me um, the, uh, what kind of impact culture can have on your productivity. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's uh, and again, what, what I think is interesting is what you're talking about. There is the, um, the reinforcement that comes from the PMs. There's a, there's a reinforcement of uh, it's, this is not a pushback culture. This is a share culture that everybody, um, uh, when, where everybody's going, Oh, okay, this is how we do it. And uh, it kind of fits what uh, Paul Graham refers to as the maker's schedule, um, which is, a relatively low interruption and sometimes just having those interruptions followed by another interruption can can completely throw your day um but i think there's a, a, a there's a, a sort of a whole uh one here in fact a quick question here about um uh open uh, open floor plan offices um uh and ad hoc discussions. Yeah, there's a, there's a bit too much research to demonstrate that uh, open plan is not a great idea um, uh, for a large class of uh, kinds of work. Um, or rather, if you have an open plan seating, then you also need to have the closed plan space. And some companies don't really offer that. They have large open plan spaces, then a couple of meeting rooms which seem to be permanently booked. Whereas the purpose of open plan is, do I want to be able to find somebody? I'm not necessarily assuming that... Um, they are going to be working on something if they want to they should be able to opt out with a colleague or whatever but because into a meeting room but we call them meeting rooms rather than work rooms we should probably call those work rooms an open plan is the place where you go to find people and it kind of means yeah i'm available for interruption um but because open plan has been 
promoted partly because it's actually cheap to run. It's it's um, <laughs> it's nothing to do with it's nothing to do with uh, our creativity and and what is a good work environment. It's, it's to do with what the bu- people who are letting the building can get away with, um, and it has been often promoted as that. So the the some be- the benefits that it does have have been kind of downplayed. Um, uh, or disrupted completely. In other words, the, 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 the spatial arrangement that you need is a little bit open plan and a little bit closed plan and with a very clear set of um, uh, responsibilities or uh, behaviours associated with each. But often what a lot, a lot of people end up with is just one option and, um, and it's just imposed on them. They don't sense that they're able to change that. Starting to uh, run short on time, I wanted to to bring the topic back to deliberate practice again. Yes. Um, in particular, uh, one thing we sort of touched on a couple of times already um, is test driven development. Yeah. I notice it's part of your your workshop schedule. What's interesting is uh, I'm doing a workshop on TDD that has a bit about deliberate practice in it, and you're doing a workshop on deliberate practice that has a bit about TDD in it. So there's obviously a, a connection there. At this point, <laughs> <laughs> so could, could you? Could you go into a bit, you know, what the connection is there, how that fits in? I think the connection is that what we're trying to emphasise is it, um, I guess, a couple of things. One is the the cyclic nature of deliberate practice. It is this idea of I'm going to do something, uh, whether you're looking at something like uh, PDSA, I plan to do something, I do the thing, I study the thing that I have done, and I act accordingly uh, to affect change then I go around again, PDSA. Or if you take the um, uh, the Boyd OODA loop, um, uh, which is a similar concept, um, and it, this idea of the repetition, there is a structure for your repetition, there's a discipline to it, but it's not just repeat, it's there are stages. You've got to stop at some point, you've got to study and reflect. Um, we choose TDD partly because that fits into the cycle, um, Clearly, there's an element there. Um, we also do that because for many people, although um, unit testing is far more popular now than it used to be, it's become, as it were, normal. Uh, many people have never actually had the opportunity to try it um, properly in, in you know, just, just to kick it around and, and then play with it, because I think we should be playing with ideas that we're unfamiliar with. Um, and so therefore, we use that for many people as an excuse of like, well, OK, maybe you haven't really had the opportunity to try this. Let's do it here in the safety of a workshop um, and to enjoy ourselves. Just let's let's play around with this idea. So there's a novelty there for some people. Some people who have done it, we ran a workshop last year where a number of people had done it. For them, it was the notion of improvement. And because we have pairing, you've got this kind of like either equal pair, we're both new to it, or one is already more experienced and the conversation evolves. So again, that's another dimension of it. Um, it's the idea that... I think often we focus on the tests and not the testing. And it's, it's one of those ideas that I often talk about, the idea uh, as well with models versus modelling. Sometimes the modelling is more important. The discussion, the reasoning that you have about how are we going to build this is more important than the final model. Planning versus plans, testing versus tests. Whilst all these other things have value, we're saying actually the very act of trying to do it and engage in it is probably more revealing and may take you to some very different places but all of that requires a certain deliberation so that's where we're coming in so tests are as it were part of the ingredient but they're not the main axis whereas in your session there's an inversion there and I, I think that would be a great tool and the reason i feel this and i know i've said this on this show a number of times but 
I don't think testing is enough of the C++ culture. And I think there's, there's a, uh, yeah. because of the, the, uh, the timing of it, right? I mean, you mentioned earlier, uh, uh, you know, talking about C++ back in the nineties and, and, you know, that's mm. when I was doing this stuff and testing was just not part of what people, they didn't, you know, they didn't think test first in the way we do now. I know one of the things that Alex Stepanoff told me about, uh, the, the, the submission to the standards committee is that he submitted the, the, the code as well as just the API, not that they used the code, but you know, they, they saw the code. He said it never occurred to him to also submit the test suite. Hmm. And he had a complete test suite that should have been standardized, right? I mean, it, yeah. it was incredibly valuable, but, but, but at, at that time we just didn't understand testing and its importance. Whereas in other languages that have been developed, you know, any language that's been developed in the last 10 years, probably all the tutorials on it were of a test driven development kind of thing. It's like, well, yeah. okay, let's say you wanted to do this. How would we do it? Well, first we need to write a test, of course, mm. because that's the way we do it. Whereas in the C++ world, I don't think we do test first. I don't think yeah. that's uh, that's considered the, the center of our design. Yeah. Whereas in other languages, I think it is. And that's why I think it's, I'm glad to see that you're, even though your topic is not testing, you're using testing as uh, this is a deliberate practice thing that people in the C++ world should be doing hmm. because we need to be more deliberate about test because we, yeah. uh, it's not as important to us as it should be. I don't mean, I shouldn't have said important. It's not as central to our, it's not as central to our thinking as it should be. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an optional extra. I think this is one of those interesting um, uh, things that I I noticed, uh, was it 2005, 2005, 2006? I think 2005, um, C plus plus connections in uh, Las Vegas. And I was there, and I did a TDD session, and uh, and I asked for a show of hands. Uh, I guess I don't know thirty thirty five people in the room. I asked for a show of hands. How many people here are writing unit tests with their code? Two of us put their hands up. Me and John Lakos. That was it. That was yeah. <laughs> so one one person's giving the session. The other person's <laughs> writing another book on you know, including testing. John's taken a little longer writing that book, but, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he says it's nearly done. <laughs> it's always nearly done. But, but yeah, he, you know, but there's that notion, like that's the only two people in the room who are writing unit tests. It's kind of like, okay. And that was really different to some of the other um, uh, programming language conferences that I was going to, where, you know, half the hands would go up. And so their challenge was change the way you write tests, write tests a little more or in a little different way. We were discussing that, whereas there was a, very different point on the curve there um, but that's that idea of it also gives us a uh, it's that idea of trying to get that into the flow make it's the making something a new normal um, the deliberate practice is trying to do that and and practice is so necessary there because I probably was in the room if I was I'm sure I didn't put my hand up uh, but I I remember a particular project it was not a major feature but it was uh, something I worked on for several weeks um, at Microsoft. And at the beginning of it, I said, okay, I'm starting something new. Let's, let's do the test first. And I really made a sincere effort. I, I went through this. And when I was finished, I looked back and I said, oh, now I understand how it should have been tested. I, yeah. Because I, 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 you know, I'm not an idiot. And yet even laid out and saying, okay, this is, let's figure out how to test it first. Um, and some, some of the issues of the way that uh, the project required um, an awful lot of OS specific stuff. And I couldn't figure out how to fake that. And yeah. so it's like, well, I'm not really going to be able to test this. You're going to have to 
it, what it was is it was importing um, data from from the OS. And, you know, how do you fake that? You either are asking the OS or you're not. And I, I realized later, oh, I could have done it with this weird trampoline kind of thing where, mm. you know, ultimately, no, the real code is going to ask the OS. But I could have structured the entire code in a way that says, okay, I need this information. And then something could have said, oh, well, then I get that from the OS. And I could have, I, I could then have isolated the vast majority of the code and created a testing framework for it. But I only saw that when I was finished because at the beginning it was like, well, you know, the whole point of this is to be able to get this information from the OS in a specific way. How do I fake that? Right. Mm -hmm. The OS is either there or it's not. I'm not going to simulate the entire OS. Right. But mm -hmm. I could have, in fact, done that. But I had to do it completely wrong in order to see that. And I, and I think if I sat down and did another one today, I might still have that problem. Although mm -hmm. I think it's less likely. I, I probably <laughs> well, would have figured that out having done it wrong. Yeah, I think that gives us that opportunity to recognize the um, go back to some of the things we talked about earlier. It's this idea of recognizing you're not going to know all of the answers, and that's okay. So therefore, you're going to undertake a process whereby you are deliberately going to try and deal with the things you don't know. You're going to learn, and and so what I guess uh, what John and I are going to be doing in our session, uh, another way of looking at it is it's kind of group therapy. Because um, it's not just going to be the two. There's going to be lots of people. And that's exactly the thing. Is like when, when somebody says, I have this problem, how would I apply this in my environment? You suddenly you are asking a room of people, you know, there's a good chance collectively we have the intelligence. Somebody else will say, I've done something exactly like that. And that, I think, is, again, the other reason that we do this um, uh, with pairs and in groups and we move people around is honestly, it's just fun talking sometimes. And, you know, you pick up either you know, you new tricks or new profound insights because somebody has the answer that you were looking for or, um, or suggests a new way of thinking, a new idea, just makes a recommendation. And I think sometimes we, again, we are prone to looking inwards rather than looking outwards for our solutions. So there's this idea that, um, again, this is part of learning. Um, the learning is not just a heads down. Sometimes you actually have to look up and look around and go, that person's doing something different. Um, um, and not to ignore the fact they're doing something different. Um, uh, why is that interesting? You know, why why is what they're doing interesting? Um, but that idea of other people have knowledge. Um, if acquisition knowledge is learning, then perhaps I could take advantage of something that somebody else uh, knows. You know, uh, is that's the that's the other side to learning, with, which I think is the important aspect that doesn't necessarily get um, communicated by the uh, the name deliberate uh, deliberate practice. Is that good deliberate practice and the original research indicated this is that it is done in conjunction with somebody else in some way that person is either um uh, a mentor or they're just a colleague the idea is that there's somebody else involved you're not alone in this which i think is quite an important um uh, insight for learning i wouldn't have thought about that insight um i i want to encourage people to attend your session your workshop i think we're out of time here. We are, yes. It flies by whenever we have. I, I, I think um, having you on distorts the, the time or something. And uh, It's been said before, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know, this is one of those sessions where I'm talking about warp drive. Occasionally I do talk about warp drive um, and the relevance it has to software development. Um, but... You know, warp drive driven development. Uh, well, yeah, this is it. But I'm not going to. I'm not going to give anything else away here, just in case I do actually use that, and I want people to come to these sessions. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's a little teaser. You know, that's the teaser in the trailer. 
Well, it, it comes to the time uh, to say, uh, to wish people safe coding. Is there anything else we need to touch on, Phil, before we do that? I think we, we covered it all today. It's the first for a while. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Kevin, for joining us. Thank you it's, very much. As always, uh, wonderful. Uh, sit back and, and swap war stories, but, uh, but also focus on what you're doing now, which is, which is exciting. And um, I, I, I can't imagine this kind of a workshop being done back in the 90s. And so that's why, I, uh, that's why I'm glad to see Even it. if we did it, nobody would turn up. That's right. They wouldn't have understand the, pro, the, the, the reasons for it, the need for it. All right. Well, um, then, uh, then I think we need to say, uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for everybody who was in the Slack channel because I think that was great. Uh, it was wonderful uh, reading the, the, the comments. I'm not sure I did read them all, uh, but I appreciated that. And uh, to you in the Slack channel, uh, to Phil and Kevlin, and also to our listeners, I wish you all safe coding. Safe coding. Safe coding.